0: Good morning. Hey, we are. You know, those words that were just up there about Jesus, I think, are, are really good introductory words for us this morning. I want you to just listen. Colossians 1 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things have been created through him and for him. Uh, Jesus Christ is the center of our community. He's the center. We found him to be the center of our lives by choice and by relationship. But what Paul says is before any of us ever existed, Christ always was. He is. He's the source of our existence. He's the source of the universe. He's the source of any life worth living and any life that is good and makes sense. And for that reason, again and again, unconsciously, but also consciously, and consciously right now, we want to take the pieces of our lives, the questions of our lives, and we want to bring them to Jesus, the areas of our lives that we're not sure what to make of and what to do with. Right now, we are in a series, we're three weeks into a four-week series on sex and sexuality. Mere sexuality is what we're calling it. We're trying to understand the historic Christian perspective on sex and marriage and all the rest. That's a lot to do in just a couple of weeks. But what that means above all is that we want to go to Jesus because we believe that Jesus has the truth and the wisdom and the way for us to live. And so especially this morning, we're going to focus on... Last week we, we focused on him and what just knowing Jesus tells us about ourselves and what God has made us to be. But this morning, we're going to pay special attention to some words that Jesus spoke in one particular interaction with some other religious teachers and leaders, and also his own disciples. And we will find profound significance in those words, I believe, this morning. Um, It was a couple of years ago when I was just finishing up my junior year of high school. A couple of years ago. A couple of decades ago. I'm not quite sure how to put it anymore, and, uh, but anyways, it was a while ago when I was finishing my junior year of, of high school, and uh, we were at a youth group gathering, high school youth group gathering, um, one Sunday night, and our youth pastor was talking to a bunch of us, a bunch of us guys, as it turned out, and he suggested that we all seek to run a marathon together, and everybody in that group and that conversation was all in, and the all in lasted for about two and a half weeks. And in the end, Mark and I ran with Drake a couple of months later. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever had to shop for shoes that were serious running shoes. I didn't, there was no conception of such a thing to me before. Um, in fact, my first couple of runs, I, I think I was running in Converse All-Stars. You know, I just, I, I didn't have, I'd never thought about running shoes ever in my life. And, um, and so I went and I purchased the first pair of shoes. I think they were something like 23 or $24, which was a not insignificant outlay. And, um, and they were made by a company that you all know like really, really well. The company is Nike. But if you think about Nike today, you think about, uh, uh, about dominance. You think about huge offerings. They're, they're everywhere. But Nike back a couple of years ago, when I was finishing my junior year of high school, was not, was just the new kid on the block. They were just getting started, and uh, uh, the shoes were really weird. I should try to find a picture of them. They were kind of a a bluish color and a gold color. It was, I'm, I'm challenged with color names, so blue and gold is about as close as I can get. Some of you could be much more particular. Um. And I didn't really like how they looked, but they were the shoes we were supposed to get. And I totally never understood the name. They were called waffle trainers. Does so that sound so bizarre? Waffle like breakfast food. Waffle trainers. Well, I'm not here to share with you this morning about the word waffle in that main, but... I want to tell you something about trainers because I never really understood these things before. You know, in the English language, there are words that mean in the United States one thing and in the UK, in the United Kingdom, something else. I want you to think about just a couple of examples. Uh, BuzzFeed is the source of, of this. Pants. So what pants mean in the US is outerwear from waist to the ankles. Trousers. And what it means in the UK is underwear. Uh, so here's a potentially confusing sentence. Well, your mom has the nicest pants. <laughs> that works really well here, but not so well on the other side of the pond, right? Or braces. What it means in the US, devices for straightening teeth. And what it means in the UK, suspenders. Potentially confusing sentence I used to always get food caught in my braces as a kid. <laughs> a biscuit. What it means in the U.S., a buttery, flaky bread served with savory meals. What it means in the U.K. is a cookie. Potentially confusing sentence. I can't eat a biscuit unless it's dripping in gravy. (laughs) First floor. What it means in the U.S., the floor at ground level. What it means in the U.K., the floor above ground level floor. Potentially confusing sentence. That super important meeting is taking place on the first floor. Don't be late. I'll save that one. A comforter. What it means in the U.S.? A quilted bedspread. What it means in the U.K.? A baby's pacifier. (laughs) Potentially confusing sentence, I can't fall asleep without my favorite comforter. (laughs) Or cider. What it means in the U.S.? A non-alcoholic apple juice popular in the fall. And what it means in the U.K.? An alcoholic beverage derived from fermented apples popular every season. Potentially confusing sentence, I used to drink cider every day as a kid. Um, oh, let me jump. Well, here's the one you all know. Football. What it means in the U.S., football. What it means in the U.K., soccer. Potentially confusing sentence, I don't like football. Uh, all right, very very confusing. Um, but here's the, here's the one I was unaware of, trainers. What it means in the U.S., a fitness expert who helps you work out And what it means in the UK, sneakers. Potentially confusing sentence, workout with trainers. What do I look like, a millionaire? So, that wasn't that funny, was it? (laughs) All right. Hey, you know, sometimes words mean really different things in different settings. Football is the one we kind of all know, but we, we literally, we immediately think of one thing, most of us, the vast majority of us, when we hear football. But that's true here. It's true nowhere else in the world. Words mean, can mean different things. The definitions matter a lot. Otherwise, there's confusion. So, I want to toss a word out to you this morning. And that word is marriage. What is marriage? What is a marriage? Hmm. Hmm. You know, um, I have a feeling, let's just say 50 years ago, that that was a pretty, or a hundred years ago, that that was a pretty simple question that nobody would have scratched their head about at all or hesitated at all or had any um, extra energy about at all They would have just answered. But today, that is actually a much more conflicted thing because a lot of us may mean one thing by marriage and a lot of others of us might mean something a little bit different. And I'm not just talking about a Supreme Court decision from a couple of years ago. What marriage means is a really contested thing. And we don't all mean the same thing by it. And I'm not just talking about male or female or same-gender relationships. Marriage has been profoundly changed in its definition in our world and in our time. And it's not that we had it all right 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying the definition is way different today from what it was a little while ago. And both definitions were probably relatively different from what the Bible says about marriage. This morning, I want you to listen with me to an encounter between Jesus and some other people and in a conversation he had with some of his own disciples. And it all swirled around, well, the... the The question that triggered everything was a question related to divorce. But I want you to see how Jesus handles that question. And I'm going to ask you to rise right now as we stand to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and pay special attention to his word from Matthew chapter 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him and they asked is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. And therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, It's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want you to picture what's going on as, as these um, Pharisees approach Jesus on this particular day. They are offering to Jesus uh, a gotcha question, um, a gotcha moment. You know what that is, don't you? Gotcha journalism. I found a, a definition for gotcha journalism. Gotcha journalism is a pejorative term used by media critics to describe interviewing methods that appear designed to entrap interviewees into making statements that are damaging or discreditable to their cause, character, integrity, or reputation. Gotcha journalism. I'm gonna pose a question to you. I'm gonna pull one of you up here right now. I'm gonna pose a question to you, and I think no matter what you say, you're gonna be in trouble. I'm not really interested in what you think. I'm not really trying to learn anything from you. I'm not really trying to discover anything. I'm sure not trying to find wisdom for my own life or for anybody else. I just want to pose a question to you and I think I'm going to have you stuck no matter what you do. And that's what these Pharisees were doing with Jesus. They did that all the time. They were, for the most part, I don't mean to cast that, that's how the the Gospels describe it, There were, of course, exceptions to the rule among the Pharisees. But overall, the Pharisees seemed to be opposed to Jesus. And they were always looking for for ways to nail him and to to, um, get him off balance and to try to say him, get him to say something or do something that would justify another move against him, to marginalize him, to, to limit him, to belittle him, and ultimately to get rid of him. And it was the same deal on that particular day. And so some Pharisees came to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Wow. <laughs> That's a pretty open-ended question, isn't it? Uh, Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any, any reason at all? And guess what? There were serious teachers who said exactly that. If a woman was displeasing to her husband in every, any way, it was okay to divorce her. If she prepared a meal for him and burned the food. The end of that marriage. For some people, that was literally the way it was. And so if Jesus was to say yes to this, what a, what a heartless man. What a, what a guy would just open up, um, uh, just destroy marriage. Because who doesn't have moments when you don't question your relationship? Uh, it's done. On the other hand, if Jesus said, no, no, it's not lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. In fact, it's not a good idea at all. There were other teachers who taught that, but then the more liberal, open-minded among them would have said, really, Jesus? You're going you're to force someone to remain in a relationship that is no good, that is a dead end, that is destructive to their, to their persons? I mean, no matter which way Jesus answered They figured they had him. Jesus is going to be too hard-hearted or too open-minded. Either way, he's in trouble. But Jesus was, generally speaking, among other things, a smart guy. He knew how to handle questions. He knew how to handle crowds. He knew how to handle the Pharisees. Eventually, he did say something, and he did some things that really got them to move, and he ended up crucified, true enough. But Jesus wasn't afraid of them. He engaged them. And he did it by kind of taking their question seriously and seeking to answer it. He doesn't tell us everything in response to this. this isn't a long conversation. But he responds in a couple of particular ways. And I want you to pay attention. I'm, I'm going to ask that you put um, verses, we're going to have verses 4, 5, and 6. So let's start with verse 4 for a moment and just put that up. I want you to see what he does here in responding to that. There's a couple of things. Number one, he asks this question, haven't you read... That's a very significant question for Jesus. Because Jesus, and, and the Jews as a whole, had a really high view of this particular book. Uh, they didn't have it in this form. But they, they, they had a very high view of, of this book because it was understood, especially those, those ones we read at the beginning of the year, Beginnings, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That was the core of God's Word. And so to understand anything of significance... Jesus said, ask this question, haven't you read? Uh, In in the history of our denomination, of our church movement, the Evangelical Covenant Church, way back to the earliest years and to a guy whose two initials, two first initials, and that's what he was known by, um, uh, sounds a bit unfortunate to me, but P.P. Waldenstrom was uh, was a major leader in in Sweden and someone in the United States among early covenants, and maybe some of you recognize uh, the P.P. Waldenstrom question. Where is it written? When talking about matters of significance, Waldenstrom said it's important that we go back and we settle things of significance by paying attention to the Bible. We're not talking auto mechanics, okay? We're not talking... how to do lots of things, but questions of faith and practice, of really understanding life and who we are and what it's all about and who God is and how we can know him, it was a question, where is it written? How then shall we live? How should we live our lives? Well, where is it written? Or in Jesus' words, haven't you read? There's one other thing he does here that's really significant, and just follow along. Um, Haven't you read that at the beginning? See, Jesus knew that when you're dealing with certain questions, especially questions of the ultimate relationship, and marriage is at least an ultimate human relationship on this planet, in this life right now. It's a profoundly significant thing in a moment. Um, Jesus felt like it was important to go back, not just to the Word, not just to the Scriptures, but in particular to what was said at the beginning see, Moses, what Moses said was important and of significance, but the context of the time, as, as, as Jesus went on to talk about it, was saying, it was because of your hardness of hearts that Moses made certain allowances. But it wasn't that way from the beginning. Jesus said, if we're really going to understand what divorce is... We really need to understand what marriage is. And if we're going to understand what marriage is, we need to go back to the beginning, to the first actions of God, to the first communication of God. And so that's what Jesus does. And he puts together two different verses in his answer from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 in a really interesting way. It's almost like he grabs them out of their context, but not really. They, they they ultimately fall together, and they make perfect sense. But he's picking one verse out of near the end of chapter 1 and one verse out of near the end of chapter 2. And he's putting them together, and he's saying, you need to understand these two verses and what God says here if you want to understand divorce, marriage, and God's will for our lives. So let's take a look more specifically. Verse 4 again. Haven't you ready?" replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Remember the end of chapter one? God has created everything. Six days of creation. We're on the sixth day. Animals of various kinds have been created. But during uh, the course of that day, however you understand that, interpret that, uh, the, God is the creator of human life, of human beings. It says, um, God created man in his image. In his likeness, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, God created a, a species. Uh, uh, um, A form of life on earth. As we all know, lots of similarities between the form of life we are and other creatures on earth as well. But there was something distinct about us from everything else. And it's this. Not that we're created by God. Not that we don't have biologies that, that are similar to other creatures. But that we among all creatures alone are created in the image of God. There's something like God in us. There's something that ties us together in a greater way than that we're created by God. There's something about humanity that's unique and distinct and special. But he doesn't just create a a, a neutral, neuter humanity. Not just human, but human as male and female. One species, but two types. Yeah, that, that exists in the animal kingdom as well, of course. But it seems like God's word is leaning into this to say, I want you to pay special attention here. When I created humanity, I created humanity in my image. Like me and for me, to reflect me and stand in my place in certain ways on earth. And not just that, male and female. Yes, there are other creatures that have male and female realities, but there's something about humanity as male and female that rises up, that's really important and significant. Even male and female together seem to reflect something of what it means to be created in the image of God. And then Jesus jumps to another verse. And I want you to flip to verse 5 here. And said, so let me back up, I'll just read the words, keep it, verse 5. Haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made the male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. It's near the end of chapter 2. It's it's the scene right after God had looked at Adam and seen Adam was alone. And for the first time ever, God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. So God brought animals to the man. He said, I got a job for you. I want you to name all the animals. And as these animals were coming along, in our household right now, we're a little concerned about Axel. Axel is our miniature German schnauzer. And Axel's tummy is not doing well right now for like day number three or four. It's, it's not fun for us either, but it's really not fun for him. We, we feel for him because we have a connection with our dog. Many of you have pets and, and there's a connection. There's a companionship. Dogs, man's best friend. I've never heard about women's best friend there, but, but man's best friend. Um, but but these animals were brought to Adam and even while they were and even while he was naming them and even maybe as he was interacting with them fine none of the animals really answered what was missing in Adam's life even uh, having a pet is not quite the same as a relationship with a human being and so God eventually Adam goes to sleep and God takes a rib from his side And forms from that rib a woman. And he brings her to Adam. And Adam wakes up and sees her. And he really wakes up when he sees her. He says, wow. This is woman. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And then right following that scene are these words. And they're clearly not about that moment only. You see how it's written? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Uh, The writer in Genesis is describing the scene in this actual moment between a first man and a first woman, but immediately he rises above it. He steps higher, and he says, "You, you just saw this story, and you saw what went on, but for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's not just the story of Adam and Eve, it's the story of marriage. This is the design. Okay, I, I, I want you to go back with me one more time. One more thing about what we understand about the Bible. What, uh, in verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? He's just quoting the Bible. And then that God said... For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Well, if you look in Genesis 2, that's not a quote from God. That's just the writer of Genesis writing that. But when Jesus quotes it, he says, God said this. And I want you to remember what that tells us, or realize what that tells us about how we understand the Bible. That's where the whole idea of the Bible as God's word comes from. Jesus quotes Moses. That's the traditional answer of who wrote Genesis. Jesus quotes Moses, but when he quotes Moses, he doesn't say, let's go back to the beginning and see what Moses says. He goes back to the beginning and says, this is what God says. Jesus took this book very, very seriously. Now, the way he puts these two words... I know this is a little heavy, but I want you to stick with me. The way he puts these two things together is really significant. He says, again, if you want to understand divorce, you need to understand marriage. And if you want to understand marriage, you need to understand creation. And marriage is tied to the way God created us. In the beginning, God created them or made them male and female. And it was for this reason that God made human beings male and female, for this reason, that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is defining marriage as a relationship between a man and a woman. And he's defining it that way based both on God's word and God's creation from the very beginning. He says it's the very design of God in creation. It's a polarity. It's, it's the way the, the, the whole structure is put up in Genesis chapter 1. Light and darkness. Heaven and earth. Man and woman. Ultimately bringing two things that are somewhat different together in a new union and a new unity that's going to express something beautiful. And ultimately, that's where the whole storyline of the Bible goes. The Bible story begins with the coming together of a man and a woman in Genesis chapter 2. And it ends in Genesis, or in Revelation 19 through 22 with the coming together of heaven and earth and of Jesus and his bride. Us. Not us so much as individuals, but us as the church, us as a community. Marriage is tied ultimately as a sign of what God is going to do with everything, bringing heaven and earth together as it's never been brought together before and bringing us together in the fullness of a connection with Jesus that is so vibrant and so powerful and so in Portage Lake terms, vital that we have not yet even tasted it. Well, we've tasted it, but we don't really know. That's what it's about. I want you to notice, before we uh, draw any more conclusions, a couple more things about what what happens here in in marriage. Verse 5, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Uh, um, There's something uh, relational and public There's not an absolute break here at all. I mean, we can read other things and we know that's not how it's designed to work. When a person gets married, the intent is not to cut off all connection with your family or your previous life. But it's still stated pretty boldly, there is a step away from your relationship with the the most significant people in your lives from birth, your parents, into a new relationship. There is something that other people know about. There's something public here. There's also something relatively intense here. It's coming together, leaving them, and being joined, being united to uh, his wife. Uh, old versions talk about the word cleave. Just um, being connected in, in, in this powerful way. It's almost like, and Jesus moves on to this, one person here and another person here coming together like this. Not ceasing to be two individuals and yet never just being two individuals again. There's something new here and it is profound and powerful and significant. And the two will become one flesh. There's a closeness in a marriage that's the intention of God that two would become one, that they would share their lives. You know, when I uh, counsel uh, couples getting ready to get married, one of the things that is talked about sometimes is finances. And, And Susan and I got married in our later 30s. We didn't do it early. And for the first nine months or so, we actually did not join our finances. I had a checking account, I had a job, she had a job, she had a checking account. I mean there was no problem it was just it was like as we were stepping into things it, we we were also used to functioning this way we we kept functioning that way and it took the better part of that year for us to say no we, this isn't the way it's supposed to be we should join we should join our lives together completely it sounds so ridiculous to me now that we did it it's, it actually didn't feel ridiculous at age 37 um, I wonder if it was actually, I hate to say this, Susan, are you here? <laughs> you know, it, it, but, but as an action, was there something being held back even after the vows? Because <laughs> that, that's what it's like. And so when I, when I counsel couples, particularly younger, younger couples, and every once in a while they talk about keeping finances separate, I say, no, 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 you, you, no, no, no. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is becoming one. You separate your finances, you will separate your lives. It's, I mean, I, I almost can't imagine a couple getting married in their early 20s and keeping finances separate and thinking they're going to stay together. It's just not the way it works. You, you bring life together. One flesh also pictures a, a physical connection. I think it pictures sexual connection. And, and, and I don't want to... Obviously, it's not a health class. Uh, uh, not sex ed here. Okay? But but the coming together of a man and a woman, there's something clearly designed. There's something in, in that relationship, in that physical coming together, that that other couplings of human beings cannot replicate. It's not the same. It's a one flesh connection that... I'll just say it, that two men and two women are not capable of experiencing. It's not the same. Sexual intercourse between a man and a woman is different than something else. And that seems to be what what Jesus is pointing toward. Now look at verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So here are the things I see as Jesus is talking about marriage. For us today, here's what marriage is, for the most part, in our culture today. It's two people who are drawn to each other. Two people who like each other. Two people who make each other feel good. Two people who feel a longing for each other. Two people who love each other. Two people who maybe have already experienced it, probably have already experienced sex together. They like having sex together. They want to have more together. It's, it's, it's all those things today, uh, um, but marriage is a relationship between two people who like each other, and, and when, when a man marries a woman, um, it's that man saying, do you know what, I like being with you. I like you. I, I care about you. I especially like the way you make me feel about myself when I'm with you. And I think you like the way I make you feel about yourself when I'm with you. I think that's a lot of what... And, and marriage and a wedding is a public celebration. Everybody come and celebrate our relationship. I'm a fan of traditional vows for weddings. Because I think they nail what a, a marriage is about. But there are still people who love to write their own wedding vows. And do you know what wedding vows, when people write them, usually are? They're not really profoundly most, first and foremost, vows. They are a celebration of how we feel about each other. And there's nothing or matter with how two people feel each other. If you don't feel those feelings for each other, what in the world are you doing here? Okay? We know you like each other. We know you love each other. But that isn't the meaning of marriage. A marriage, in the eyes of God, is a covenantal, not a contract, but a covenant, a promise between a man and a woman who are coming together, two people, both human, who who find a commonality with each other and something that attracts them to each other, yes, but they are distinct and different, almost like when they come together, they become a whole, and there was something missing before they came together, almost something like that. And, 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 and the relationship they have is exclusive. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not break this. You shall not share this with anybody else. This relationship is unique. The ways you are one with this one other person, you don't want to be one with anybody else in that same way. Don't share your finances. Don't become unified financially with someone else. You don't live with somebody else. You, you, you don't um, share kids with somebody else. You don't share a bed with somebody else. You don't share your name with somebody else. You become one in this relationship. It is exclusive in that way. Not to rule out the rest of humanity. You married couples have lots of friends, right? It's not ruling out other people, but it's ruling out other people from this marriage. And then, do, do you notice something else? It is, and, and we're not wading into the divorce world This morning, which affects so many of us in so many ways. I'm I'm not even thinking about the past. I want you to think about the future. If you're married today or getting ready to get married today, I want you to think about God's intention as you are facing forward. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is saying that God's intention in marriage... It's to bring a man and a woman together in a most unique relationship that is sealed by sex and not founded on sex. And that is intended to last. And do you know why, among other things? Because it's a sign of the relationship between Jesus Christ and us. And that relationship is intended to last. Do you want Jesus' love for you to last? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think we do. And it's not based on feelings. I mean, if Jesus was uh, was basing his relationship with us or me based on how he felt about what I was doing or what I was saying or what was going on in my inner life or my outer life on any particular day, I would be toast. But Jesus' commitment to me is all in. It's never let go. It is sticking with me and sticking with us forever. And so do you know what marriage is? Marriage is intended to be this strong bond in the midst of a world where we're breaking up all the time in so many ways. Whew. Wow. And the disciples were freaked out about it when Jesus was talking like this. Did you notice? At the end, they, get, they come up to him and he's like, if this what it is what it means to be Married? I'm, I'm not sure. It might be better not to get married. Jesus, you mean you're really supposed to be committed to each other? They, they were like shocked. They knew the Moses line. I can get out of this anytime I want. Man, we're all in today. Because you know what we're into today? We're into relationships about feelings. Feelings come and go. If it lasts, great. If it lasts a lifetime, awesome. If it doesn't, no problem. You can step out of it. The promises you make are for as long as it's good. That is what marriage is today. And if that's all it is, two people who have nice feelings for each other and really warm feelings and really care and want to celebrate it with other people and are getting ready to start a family and will live together and all the rest, as long as it's good, why not extend that to any coupling or more? We'll find out in the future of human beings. Why would you deprive anybody of that? But Jesus is saying, that's not what marriage is. Marriage is a relationship not defined by tradition or culture or people or the Supreme Court or any any of us. God designed it. I'm not starting a campaign to change uh, everybody's view on marriage in the United States. Do you know what I am challenging you to? To pay attention to what Jesus tells us about marriage. And in him, our lives hold together. In him, our marriages hold together. In him, our lives and our families can hold together even when a marriage fractures and breaks because it happens, doesn't it? But Jesus doesn't run away from us. What is sex for? In the relationship world of today, sex is something you do in order to make sure It's something you check out. Ideally, remember, you don't buy a car without taking it for a test drive. Sex is something, one more test of a relationship. I like her. I like her in bed. Maybe it'll be okay. Maybe we can get married. But that's not what what God describes. It's not what Jesus points to. For a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Sex seals it. Sex doesn't ground it. And it's meant to seal. I quoted Sam Alberry two weeks ago, who said Sex is like a post it note. And when we post it here, and post it here, and post it here, and post it here, it loses the stickiness that it's intended. To give to a relationship to make it stronger. That's where I leave you. That's where I leave you. Right now we're going to step around the table. It's not a grass on the head ritual. It's it's not a, a newfangled thing. But it's Jesus with us, his church, his bride. Talking about his commitment to us. And showing it to us and allowing us to come up like a renewal of wedding vows. To come up and take the bread and the cup and to hear his promise to us. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And for us to say, thank you, Jesus. I take what you give. It is my life. Lord God, thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for the profound and heavy truth of Jesus. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the joy and the beauty, even in a fallen and difficult world, of what marriages can show. And now meet us around this table and renew us. We pray in Jesus' name.